Support for Podcast by Night is provided by Midnight Syndicate. To learn more, please visit MidnightSyndicate.com. Welcome to Podcast by Night. My name's John. I'm Jen. And we are going to open this uh, episode a little differently just because of the, as, as Jen and I have put it, the times we are living in because of the subject of this episode. So we just wanted to address the civil unrest that's going on because it does seem a little timely and on the nose for our subject tonight. Yes, we plan these episodes. We've been planning some of these years in advance at this point. And it just so happened that this episode came up at this time in real life and this time in our country when, you know, right now it's a it's a very important and pivotal moment. And we want to recognize that. We want to recognize the the real situation we're living in and and not use this podcast as a way to make light of that. That is not what we're here to do because I think John and I both can speak from our positions of being in support for all everyone, but particularly those in our community, both Black and Latino and Asian American, who are all feeling very affected by everything right now and, and feel that this is their, their voice that they need to get heard. And I, I know I fullheartedly am in support of of all my friends and all my neighbors who are involved in the protests going on right now. But in saying that, it just happened to fall on the same at the same time we were recording Anarchs. Yes, I want to second all that. the The whole thing that I know Jen feels the same way that we feel about this game. Is and 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 again, like like I like we said, this is very timely. In that, this isn't to make light of it at all. I don't I don't consider this game to be light, and it is definitely a reflection of how the world of darkness is a reflection of our world. And in that, I definitely want to say that because of the community, I I just want to say I love you guys. Yes. The World of Darkness community has really rallied around supporting the Black Lives Matter. Yes. And, of course, this month is the LGBTQ plus month. Yes. Uh, Pride month. It's Pride month. And Pride month. And so we just want to put our support out there as well. Yes. Because the vampire and World of Darkness community stands with you and so do we. Yes. And no matter where you are or where you live, if you know, you matter. And absolutely for those of you who are in pain right now, who are angry at this, at this sense of loss and this, this violence, it's, um, we, we mourn with you. We stand with you. And by no means do we want this episode to undermine what you're, what you're doing because we believe in you and we are, we are standing with you. So just so you know that. That's right. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. So. Okay. So with that, let's go ahead and kick this off. 
<laughs> and, and appropriately, our opening statement is, damn the man. Damn the man. To hell with the status quo. I'm feeling that this week, John. I'm feeling it so hard. <laughs> you know what? Like, I, I, I'm with you. It's just, I've said it before, I am not without my uh, sympathies for a little anarchy and civil unrest. I believe that's a very American thing to do. It is. And uh, I love it. And and also the the idea with the world of darkness is that sometimes vampires have those feelings too. Yeah. Because as as we've seen before, I mean, I know we've done the Camarilla episode with how strict the elders hold their sway over kindred society. Well, let's just say sometimes the uh, fledglings have had enough. Yes, they have. And you can only put up with the status quo for so long. And sometimes a vampire has to live on their own terms and answer to no one but themselves. Well, for the most part. As long as there has been organized vampiric society of any kind, there have been those who have chosen to live outside of all of that for one reason or the other. Whether it be the stronghold of the elders or the or the fact they just don't like vampires or society or people. There have always been those who have chosen to remove themselves from organized collectives of with laws and rules and regulations. And in modern nights, these vampires are often called anarchs. These are individuals who chafe at the constraint of the demanding elders. Because as we, we just got done with the Camarilla, and you can see, like, the rules, the laws, the traditions, the elders, you know, you owe me a boon, and you owe me a boon, and everybody owes me a boon. Like, they they don't want to deal with that shit. <laughs> and, and they also don't want to have to deal with the elders and their endless games of power and prestige. So, so they say, fuck it. I'm out. Because by definition, within the polite kindred society, an anarch is a rebel among the kindred, um, one who does not respect their elders. And as we've seen in the past, we're going to touch a little bit more on this about the, the beginnings of the movement. The term has definitely come to define these vampires because some of them are maybe kindred who are fledglings that the elders have kept under their boot They've tried to, they say they lack proper respect for their age. You know, screw that. It's like, listen, buddy, I may be embraced this clan, but, you know, Mr. Vince Stuffy Venture, you don't tell me what to do. I will not bend the knee. <laughs> I am a free kindred. I will not bend the knee. I will not be a kneeler. Oh, wait. A, That's right. Am I crossing my, my genres again? Yes. <laughs> well, it happens often. Yeah. <laughs> I'm writing a, a Game of Thrones chronicle right now, guys, and believe me, so much of my vampire like political acumen comes into play there, and I'm just like, see, there's a reason I keep making these comparisons in the podcast. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. Anarchs are simply the vampires who don't want to live under the system of elders and prestige, and a lot of that are the hallmarks of the Camarilla, Camarilla. And there are many reasons for that. And one of those reasons are simply they balk at the idea of class and elitism, which is clearly when I would say when we say modern knights, definitely with these ideals, it goes all the way back to civil unrest among the kindred or the kind, the mortals, all the way back from the beatnik days 
to protests of Vietnam War, what have you. When we say modern knights, I'm I'm referring to like all stretching all the way back into the 20th century because you know, it's so weird to say that, but yeah. the 20th century because we're in the 21st. It's also the idea that these vampires think that the elders have misused their power. They feel that they have been pawns in their games for far too long. Have they been embraced? And the idea is like whether they were embraced from the sect and left behind or abandoned, they never learned the rules. Say that you were, gang girl usually comes to mind when, when it's something like this. Mm-hmm. You're embraced, you're kind of left out in the wild, you don't know the intricacies and the etiquette that uh, held the Camarilla courts together. Yeah, unlike the Camarilla, who work as a highly structured organization with their officers and their traditions and their prestation and everyone's in their plan and everybody knows their place, Anarchs aren't really truly an organized unit. That's kind of the definition of Anarchs. If anything, they like to think of themselves more in terms of a movement that's come together, bringing the truth to the people about freeing themselves from the petty abuses of the elders who control the Camarilla. And because of that, the history of the movement really kind of lies way back in the first Anarch Revolt, uh, which occurred in the wake of the Inquisition. Again, we keep coming back to that Inquisition. It's, it's sort of that defining moment for vampire society in the game. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the idea that I know I mentioned it before about keeping the fledgling under their boot. These are kind of the this is when the the fledglings, the new embraces, the younger vampires, the neonates really got a taste of how good the elders have it and how they're kind of under their boot. Because one instant was with the Inquisition you know, mortals were hunting down vampires left and right. And so the elders are like, hmm, I want to live to see another night. So I'm going to offer up my my fledglings as bait. I'm going to be like, no, look, oh, look over there. There's a vampire as they run the other way. Yeah. So elders kept like throwing their, their fledglings under the bus for the hunters to come find. And because of that, the fledglings got pissed off and said, if they're going to do that to us, well... I can do it back to them. And so the fledglings started revealing the hiding places of these elder vampires to the hunters and said, hey, yo, there's a vampire over there. You may want to go and get him. Sort of like a Looney Tunes cartoon with with Bugs and Daffy and Elmer Fudd. Right. Duck season. It's duck season. Wabbit season duck season that's really what you have going on here so elders are throwing fledglings under the bus so that they can escape fledglings are pissed off so they're revealing elders uh hiding places so the hunters can find them so a lot of these fledglings start banding together in groups to fight against the hunters as well as the elders basically because they were like well they're going to kill us and they don't care about us so We need to remove the elders from power and we need to remove their influence from over us. We need to free ourselves from the power of the man, essentially. And that's so at the heart of the first Anarch Revolt is they were fighting against the status quo of vampiric society that said you had to bow and scrape to your elders. 
and they're trying to upend it. So, of course, the elders who are the one, arbitrators of all that is law and justice in this world, um, they saw them as being an unruly mob who needed to be controlled and needed to be set down. Sound familiar? And so they called those groups anarchs because they felt that they were in anarchy against the against everything that the elders saw as bringing order out of chaos. They felt these anarchs were trying to destroy that order and they let chaos reign, which an argument could be made that was exactly what they were trying to do. So the anarchs, for the most part, were kind of a really unorganized group. There were some charismatic figures, though, such as Patricia Bolingbroke, who was a bruja, who uh, she became kind of a leading figurehead in the first anarch revolt in the Middle Ages. Mind you, this is all happening in the Middle Ages. And Patricia attempted to attack the ancient Ventru Harderstadt, the German Ventru. And the outcome of that was and is very suspicious amongst both the Ventru and the Bruja to this day. But other than that, really... Patricia was really the only major spokesperson. There wasn't really another person who could just organize and, and help lead the Anarch cause against the elders. And, and consequently, they, had, they were starting to meet the same problem that many such Anarch causes that try to overthrow the status quo do. And... And they ran into the, the solid wall that was the quickly forming Camarilla. And we also remember at this time, uh, the Inquisition, you had the Camarilla kind of circling the wagons. You had the Anarchs nipping at their heels and you had the Asimites at their backs. Yes. So what is a group of kindred supposed to do when they feel that their entire existence is, is threatened? Well... They, tr- they form a truce. So the Anarchs, they only got legal standing after the Convention of Thorns, which was in the year 1493, when the three factions, as I said, the Camarilla, the Asimites, and the Anarchs, as a whole, I guess, they all met to hash out their differences of the conflict. And so thus the truce was made by all sides to end the aggression, because again, this really threatened all their existences. So they had to figure out something to do. And so one of these things was the truce of non-aggression between the warring sides. And the idea was that if either side broke that peace, they would be considered Lex Talionis. And uh, what is that, Jen? So Lex, uh, the, the idea of Lex Talionis is the ancient law of the blood hunt. So your, your blood is forfeit. So if you... Anyone broke that piece, you were subjected to Lex Talionis. And actually, let me do half a second pardon while I while I go and actually look up the proper meaning of Lex Talionis. Because now I'm, I'm just curious. It is, according to dictionary.com, it's not even the Webster's Dictionary, is the law of retaliation whereby a punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree. In other words, an eye for an eye. The Lex Talionis of feud violence and blood money. It's not really dramatic. I love it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's why they chose the, uh, the word. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. <laughs> Uh, the other part of the uh, Convention of Thorns was that the Camarilla 
and all their elders, like most patient parents, they viewed the Anarchs as just unruly kids. And so they were expected at some point to return to the Camarilla. Plus all their property would be returned. They would work peacefully towards their own ends. The idea was that only those that had committed the most heinous offenses would be put to death or considered again they would they would not be forgiven they would so lex talionis yeah and if the elders continue to war on the anarchs then this is the quid pro quo of that if then if they continued the war that would invalidate the treaty and they could rise up and the anarchs could rise up to defend themselves so this was the idea the camaria said okay let bygones be bygones anarchs we will let you come back free and clear. You're still considered to be members of the Camarilla. We will give you your property back. All will be forgiven except for you fuckers over there who done fucked up and y'all know who you are. But the rest of you can all come back in. And the Anarchs are like, only if the elders don't aggress upon us anymore and use us as cannon fodder, you fuckers. Because the minute you do... All treaties are off and we will defend ourselves with our own lives if need be. And so, yeah, that was the agreement that got made. And the Anarchs were given the freedom to renounce the Camarilla and to operate in freedom so long as they didn't breach the masquerade. That was the key piece because the masquerade was vital. That was what was going to protect them from the Inquisition. Hide yourself do not draw attention to yourself. So as long as anarchs can keep the masquerade, you can declare yourself an anarch and say, I'm going to be outside the Camarilla bounds. And the Camarilla is like, okay, but don't fuck up and break the masquerade. To do that, they just had to formally declare that they were an anarch to the prince of the domain. And once the prince recognized them, then okay, then they are an anarch. They can go in peace. That's the idea, at least. However, there were a few exceptions. First of all, the Convention of Thorns did ban the Asamites from committing diablerie on other clans. That was not to say that the Asamites couldn't diablerize within all with the, within their own clan. They could do that all they wanted, but they could not diablerize outside of their clan. And if that was the case, Alamut was freed of any of the Camarilla's demands like they would make no more demands on Alamut but as we mentioned in our Asmite episode that got really complicated very quickly and yeah there would be a whole other separate treaty with the Asmites known as the Treaty of Tyre that would handle the bigger Asmite questions because Asmites were all like nah dog nah we're not cool with this so they still had a whole other issue they had to work out that involved a treaty and maybe the Tremere laying a curse on them. It was kind of nasty. But... Please see the Asamite and Tremere episode. Yes, go see, go listen to our, our Asamite and our Tremere episodes. But the other big exception to all of this was there were two Anarch clans, entire clans who had gone Anarch. The La Sombra and the Shimisei. And... There were also several other individuals of other clans who did not agree with the with the Convention of Thorns, but the two major players were the La Sombra and the Shimisei. 
And the problem with those two clans, as we'll find out when we get into both of them in our upcoming Sabbat episodes, is that both of those clans did something unforgivable. They killed off their clan founders. They killed their clan founders. <laughs> yeah, that scared that, that's the not shit fuck. out of the elders. They're like, what the fuck did you just do? You killed off an antediluvian. What? No, they had that freed the hell out of out of the elders. And they were not inclined to invite the Lasombra and Shemisei into their super cool vampire boy band club. And thus, they were like, yeah, no, Lasombra and Shemisei, we don't know how we feel about you. And basically, their feeling was mutual. They were all like, fuck you. Like, we'd want to be part of your loser group anyway. And they would eventually swan off to go become the core of what would be known as the Sabbat, which we will get into in future episodes. But the others, by and large, the ones that did not go running off to the Sabbat, they just chose not to go home. They didn't necessarily go back to the Camarilla. They just chose to just not return to their sires. They were going to be their own vampires. You know, they, they they purposely didn't choose to join the Sabbat because that was starting to get more and more extreme. The Camarilla was not a home for them either. They decided to stay outside the Camarilla, breaking no laws, but not participating either. And their cause was more or less defeated and for a very long time. And they were forced to either move further and further outside of the growing influence of the Camarilla... Or band together in common cause to push back against it so that they could even have some territory for themselves. And of course, with all that pushing back and moving further away over the centuries, there have been many who have chosen to stand outside of the Camarilla and its protections. And most of them had a beef with the sect for one reason or another. Often it was the elders. I know we've said before that the elders were kind of like the big bads for their you know, their anger, their rage against the machine, so to speak. And many of them, though not all, happen to be Bruja. Now, we all know that the Bruja have that sense of, I mean, hell, their clan symbol is the anarchy symbol upside down. Yep. I mean, so, color me shocked. Anarchs are Bruja. What? <laughs> they, even though, even though there's Bruja within the Camarilla, yes. it, it's also their Anarchs were kind of like it was a cause that just spoke to them. You mean I have to feel very passionate about something very, very, very esoteric and dear to my heart and just be very philosophically opposed to things? Yes, let's do this! <laughs> and while they still lived outside of Camarilla, that didn't mean that they completely flouted the laws and the traditions. Anarchs that were tolerated under the Convention of Thorns, which the Camarilla had recognized, had some status and protection even if the Anarchs didn't recognize the elders who gave it. So that's another thing that uh, I think over the years, the Anarchs, because I, I know that in any, many games I've played, when we've had Anarchs in the city, the prince has kind of afforded them, not, not really like status, but sort of like temporary acknowledgement, if you will, just so the members of the court wouldn't aggress against them for any reason. Yeah, so it's usually one of those things that princes have to fumble through. Because Anarchs, by and large, don't necessarily come a court and 
I'll just be like, hey, sup? Hey, everybody in Elysium. Hey, let's let's just hang out and chat and do some court shit. No, that's anarchs tend to not like that. But uh, at times they they do come into a formal court, especially if they have a beef with a prince or an issue they want to discuss. So when they do, the prince is going to be like, well, I got to figure out a reason why they, they don't get killed. Because most princes will still consider them kindred under their domain and under their purview. But if they're formal anarchs, you want to respect the Convention of Thorns. So it's always this weird balancing act. And having played a prince, it's always annoying when an anarch shows up. Because you're like, damn it. Now they're going to be in here and they're going to want to talk and I have to let them be protected. But really, I just want to kind of punch them in their fat face and like, fine. Just don't. But it is like, like, like you said, Jen, it is a balancing act because while the the prince and the Camarilla court of the city (laughs) afford them some courtesies and allowing them to kind of spread their ideology, the anarchs themselves also will fiercely protect the masquerade. It's one of those, it, it's again, it's, it's both sides agreeing to the, the treaty of the convention of thorns to be like, Hey, you know, you're doing your part. We're going to do our part because, you know, I like being able to come around here and try to get a few converts and maybe get some business done. Just as long as you don't try to kill me, I'm going to make sure no one knows about you. Yeah. It's sort of like the idea of if you're cool, I'm cool. Right. And as long as we're all agreeing that we'll be cool, that's when the Anarchs and the Camarilla work best together. And it should be made very clear. The Anarchs are not precisely without a sect. I think that's very important to make clear. Because I think sometimes in people's minds... Classic anarchs were like, they were either sectless or they were their own sect. And that's not totally true. The Camarilla still considers anarchs to be very much under their purview and span of supervision. Doesn't matter what the anarchs think. The Camarilla thinks this. So the anarchs may beg to differ. And again, they'll try to push against it, whatever. But as far as the Camry is concerned, the Anarchs are under their purview. And this is this becomes important, especially when we get into things like the Second Anarch Movement, because princes feel like they have some authority over the Anarchs, even if it's a small authority. Whereas Anarchs don't always feel that way. And it's that push and pull between the Anarchs that often causes trouble between the Camarilla and the Anarchos. Right. So between the Convention of Thorns, up until, I guess, the beginning of the modern nights, the Anarch movement was more or less lost. They kind of lost their political power. People kind of started to forget about them. Uh, And the main reason is that because of the Sabbat started to gain influence they became the focus of the Camarilla as a true political challenger so the Camarilla is like yeah yeah anarchs we remember you guys but this sabat threat mm, that's a little bit more on the table so you guys have fun spread your little rebellion we got bigger fish to fry 
but like I said, that was what like with that within six centuries up until the modern nights that was going to change yeah really it's the 20th century when everything changed for the anarchs i mean pretty much from the convention of thorns up until the modern nights yeah okay anarchs sure you're there we see you okay whatever they just paid no attention if the camera were to name an enemy and that's if they were to name an enemy. The Sabbat would usually get that label. Now, admittedly, many elders didn't necessarily see a huge difference between the the Anarchs and the Sabbat. And there is a huge difference, even though they are kind of like cousins in their development. There, there is a both of them are an or Anarch groups. Both of them kind of grew up from the same wellspring of discontent. But they are very different. But for some elders, they didn't necessarily see a difference. But the the Sabbat, especially as you got into the like 18th and 19th century, was starting to be seen as more and more of a threat. And the Anarchs kind of were just biding their time and they're doing their thing. And they're like, how can we run an experiment? How can we build a vampire utopia? And in the 20th century, they by God sure tried. That's right, because one of the, the largest style movements that seemed to, it was almost tailor-made for them, was going to successfully occur in Russia at the turn of the 20th century. That's right. We are talking about, what was it, the Bolshevik Revolution? The Bolsheviks, yep. Yes, it was the time when the autocratic imperial rule of Russia was sort of, they were starting to topple. It was going to go down. And the people were going to rise up. And the Anarchs were like, holy crap, this is it. The revolution! Yes! Revolution is not going to be televised because there are no televisions. There but were movie cameras, though. There were movie cameras. So while the Bolsh- the sorry, the, the Imperials of Russia were tormenting the humans, that doesn't mean that the vampires weren't being tormented as well. Because the Ventru and the Toreador had a stranglehold of control in, in Russia. Uh, like they did in a lot of major cities. And so the Anarchs were like, hey, if the humans are going to th- overthrow the Tsar, let's see what we can do. Yeah. So after the Tsar's overthrown in 1917, pretty much the entire Russian Empire was thrown into chaos and civil war for for years, for years. It was uh, white Russians against red Russians and different factions of Bolsheviks fighting with each other. And... Vampires were no exception in all of this, mostly because it's their human influences that were being turned upside down. And princes were being overthrown by one anarch group or the other. Um, and each one of these anarchs was seeking to end the autocratic rule of these Venture and Toreador and, and gain access to their influences. So because of the nature of both Russia and the princes who ruled there, both on the human and vampire side, they they had a very autocratic viewpoint of how to rule on all sides. Uh, the these brujas said rather than creating yet new princes or even barons, like let's throw that model completely out of the window, and we're going to create a collective. We're going to create a collective of. Bruja, they're going to form a council 
and that this is going to be who are going to come mutually together to guide and to lead kindred society in Russia. Unfortunately, they were about as ruthless and authoritarian as the people who preceded them. And in many ways, they modeled themselves off of the new communist regime that took over Russia because they admired the communists quite a bit. So a lot of their tactics were modeled off the humans. And while they weren't precisely close to or in league with the, with the Bolsheviks, they did favor their belief system, their style of governance, the way they wanted to set up everything. So, so they used that same style to their advantage. And consequently, they were kind of just as big of assholes as the princes that they had overthrown. This time, however, because the council is almost uniformly Bruja, they were very anti-Bruja, because fuck you guys. If you're not Bruja, then fuck you. And <laughs> and looked on other clans pretty hostily. This coupled this uh, coupled with their authoritarianism meant that other very other anarch groups in other parts of the world kind of looked at them with kind of like kind of like a little bit of a like are you guys really anarchs? They gave them kind of the eye. They didn't trust them because basically this group, even though they kind of started in anarchy. They did not really uphold the anarch cause of freedom. You know, every vampire has a right to be free and and be self-determinant. And this group was so not about that. It was like, who has a right to be free? Us. We, the Bruja Council, have the right to be free and fuck all the rest of you all. Because we're going to keep control of that. And the other anarchs are like, I don't know how anarch these guys are. I don't know how I feel about calling them Anarch. The Camarillo is like, they look like Anarchs to me. Rubber stamp that shit. Suddenly the, right. the, the USSR is all Anarchs. Let's just call them that and move on. Right. And this, I think this is the first time in history we find the Anarch Free State name used as far as, yeah, you know, instead of like a Camarilla City or a Sabat City, this is an Anarch Free State uh, but with all good things must come to an end. So in the late 80s, as the USSR was starting to feel the weight of the political change and the communist regime was starting to sort of collapse under itself, the Bruja Council started to feel the same forces moving against them, working against them in the way that they ruled the kindred of Russia. And so because of this, what happens when the ship starts going down all the rats start fighting each other to get for some dry dry land so that's what the bruja did the bruja council started squabbling and infighting their power and their control over russia started to fail and sometime in the 90s it completely collapsed the bruja the quote-unquote experiment of the bruja was over and russia unfortunately was dominated by a creature called Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga! Baba Yaga. And apparently this was a an extremely powerful Nosferatu. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Very but, mysterious. You know, but apparently kind of mysterious. She had powers that one could not quite quantify. 
and for nearly a decade, she kind of ruled over the land, but then she mysteriously vanished. She was destroyed under mysterious circumstances. And essentially that, I guess that's where we are now with Russia. That's their sort of, who, who does rule them now? Is it Camarilla? I, I think they're still kind of trying to piece it all back together and figure out how it, it works. I mean, Russia's a huge country. And uh, I'm sure there are many kindred who were like, Bruja tried, they fucked it up. Now it's a chance for me to have my my chance in Russia. And so I think it's sort of like the wild, wild west in Russia right now. Okay, so we're back to Anarchs then. <laughs> yep. Yep. Another place is Australia. Now, the Anarchs, while they were a minority in Australia, they managed to take control of the city of Perth on the West Coast. They, quote-unquote, liberated the city recently, you know, in the grand scheme of vampire history. But on the West Coast, while the other cities in the further north and south were fighting amongst each other like Sabat and Camarilla do. Yeah. So on the east coast of Australia, it's almost all either Sabat or Camarilla. Sydney has an independent prince. He is not an anarch. He is simply independent. Which you're probably thinking, what the hell's the difference? I don't know. There's a difference. He is not an anarch. He does not stand in anarchy to the Camarilla. He is completely independent from the Camarilla, absolutely, and is not a member of the Sabbat. That is the difference. But Perth is straight up an anarch stronghold. Yeah, Australia is one of those countries that makes sense. I mean, the way that they were founded to begin with, I thought the whole bloody place would be anarch. (laughs) You would think that, and... Considering I'm drinking a very fine Australian wine called 19 Crimes, um, it, it, you would appropriate, appropriate, right? It would you would think that there would be uh, more of some good old fashioned anarchy, but nope, no, it's it's primarily Camarilla and Sabat as far as straight up kindred vampires are concerned. We're we are not discussing the Kuijin, who are also there. No. Ah, right. That's definitely for another time. Yeah. Okay, and then we have, of course, North America. Now, in North America, the ideas of class and subservience never really took a strong hold here like they did in Europe. So the Anarchs thrived here. They loved it, and it makes sense. Yeah, in North America, there was space enough for them to exist without always bumping into a Camarilla city or a Sabat holding. And, you know, honestly, there were a few elders around in America to really make a big deal about, like, you are in my domain, Peck. There are no true elders here, so they could go and do whatever they wanted. And so many notable anarchs, such as Patricia Bolingbroke, who eventually would become known as Tyler... She came over to America. Um, as you remember, she was one of the old OG first Anarch Revolt vampires. But also Jeremy McNeil and Salvador Garcia were two later generation vampires embraced within a century or even just decades of the 19th century or the 20th century, who eventually made their way over to America. And and they and they started settling down and going traveling across the country. So, in particular, places like the American West were very inviting for these these vampires, 
because they wanted a bit of freedom away from the strictures of the Camarilla. They refused to join the Sabbat. So I can't be in a Camarilla-held city. I don't want to be around where the Sabbat are. So, hey, look, there's this wide open country that like people are either have not gone and built cities in or are slowly building cities in. We can go live there and we can build lives that are free from all this Camry and its nonsense. But unfortunately for some of them, the West, the West side of North America didn't always stay free and open. There, the problem was that the West Coast had always had already had cities and towns and settlements for centuries before the British based colonists made their way across the country. Spain had colonized this area long before any of the more English-based descendants came here. There were already, Los Angeles dates, uh, and this is a little known fact for all y'all, Los Angeles actually is uh, dates to the 18th century. It was a, it was at least a little village here. So there was a lot of these little towns out here that some of these people coming across looking for new lands, looking for new uh, places to settle down, they came and they settled. And eventually these towns would slowly begin to boom and explode in population. And one of those towns was Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, it's, I feel like Los Angeles is a primary example of a Western boom town because Los Angeles didn't have just one boom. It had probably seven or eight booms. And with every boom, it has grown exponentially, whether that boom was from your Northern Europeans coming in to settle the area or whether it was because now, now it's Mexican. Oh, wait, now we're free of Mexico. Wait, now we're, we get these East Coasters who are looking for oranges. They want to come and settle and have an orange like ranch in the middle of a desert for some stupid ass reason. You know, now that you get more Easterners coming out and they're bringing railroads. Oh, wait, there's oil in Los Angeles? Who the hell knew that? So now you get more speculators coming to, like, drill down and and find oil underneath the city of Los Angeles. Then it's the movie industry. Then it's the military. And and on and on and on and on. Los Angeles has... Don't forget the avocados. Well, yes, and the avocados, because they're delicious. So, yes, uh, Los Angeles is an example of one of these West Coast boom towns that was really fed by Eastern interests coming into the, the, the city, all full of their romantic notions of life in the West. And because of that, the more that the Easterners came in and put money into Los Angeles the more the Camarilla became interested and they showed up oh, about the middle of the 19th century looking to put down some serious roots. Yeah, I would definitely want to second and echo that uh, Los Angeles being one of those places that's going to be very important. And not just, the, not just LA, but the West Coast in general is going to be very, very important to the Anarchs. And as far as boom times go, it's very easy to do a little digging and see like exactly those moments in history where Los Angeles sort of hit those growth spurts. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that I just, I just love that white wolf was able to do 
when they created the world of darkness and like what LA by night, which I'll put the link in the show notes is that they were able to use those growth spurts as plot points, essentially about how kindred politics were being played out. Though I will say as a, a student of history who actually took a whole course on Los Angeles history at UCLA, I have a few beefs with LA by night. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to put it out there. I mean, John and I, we both live in Los Angeles, so we know the city well. We've lived here. God, can you believe we've lived here 20 years? Because we moved out here the same exact time. So I'm like, it's been 20 years. We've gotten to know the city well. There's a few beefs I have with LA by night, but I do admire them for their trying. Yes, please join us for our Patreon-only episodes where Jen corrects World of Darkness. And another thing. No, if you really want to get me like all up in arms, <laughs> start me on their concept of history in the Middle Ages around the Inquisition. I have lots to say about that. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So with all that, with the Camarilla settling in, to uh, set up those roots, as Jen said, there was one Toreador elder named Don Sebastian who became the first prince of the domain and the Camarilla built a foothold here. But even as the city began to expand, as we said before, growth, growth spurts, a series of booms, other vampires less interested in the Camarilla arrived. And among them were the aforementioned, oh, both Brujas, Jeremy McNeil, and Salvador Garcia. Now these two... And our personal games out here. It's like you cannot play a game in Los Angeles without these names coming up. Oh, no. Like, I think no, no. every chronicle we've ever run has involved Jeremy McNeil and Salvador Garcia, either as NPCs or as characters who players got to play on some level. And, yeah, you cannot, you just can't have a Los Angeles-based game without having Jeremy McNeil and Salvador Garcia somewhere in the picture. Right. Now, these two were anarchs that came over from... Where did they come from? Jeremy McNeil is... Well, from his last name, I would guess he's Scottish. I'm trying to remember where exactly he came from in at the end of the day, but he slowly made his way across the U.S. He didn't come here directly. Salvador Garcia is Spanish. So in particular, given that the Don Sebastian was the prince, the the first prince of the domain of of Los Angeles, Jeremy McNeil was a big thorn in his side. He was going to play a key role in challenging the rule of Don Sebastian. Because like we said, Jeremy McNeil was an anarch. And after everything that happened in Russia with the turn of the century... He felt kind of bolstered by the by the ideals of the anarch movement. Yeah, he started gathering all the young bloods around him, and they kind of started looking to Jeremy as their leader and their voice in Don Sebastian's court. And consequently, Don Sebastian started feeling pretty threatened by Jeremy McNeil. Now, I will say that there's some other shenanigans and hijinks that were going on behind the scenes that most other kindred did not see. That was part of why Don Sebastian was more than a little jealous of Jeremy McNeil. But sorry, I lost my place in the 
outline. There we go. Yeah, so there are a few things behind the scenes that were part of the reason there is this clash between Don Sebastian and Jeremy McNeil. But on the to the average outsider, it just looked like Jer- Don Sebastian was just getting irritated and threatened by the growing support Jeremy McNeil was getting from all the young bloods in the city because he was a very charismatic guy and he was the one who was sort of speaking for them. So finally Don Sebastian had enough and decided to do something supremely stupid. And in 1944, he la- he finally lashed out at McNeil he, and nearly beating the Bruja to death. And now I want you to stop and think about this. This is a Bruja. He's not like a super young Bruja either. He's got probably a century, couple centuries on him at this point. So he's not super young. Don Sebastian beats the living shit out of him. The living shit out of him. Like, as I stop and I think about it, I'm like, holy hell. Like, this is a Bruja he just beat up. Like, a Bruja. Now, admittedly, Brujas don't have the Ventrue fortitude going on here. And we talked about this in both our Ventrue and our Bruja episodes, how their powers sort of offset each other. Don Sebastian beat him within an inch of his own life. A man who has hilarity. You know, a man who has potence. And Don Sebastian just beats the living shit out of him. So, I don't know what the story is behind that. I'm going to admit, it's kind of fishy to me. I've always felt it was kind of fishy. Did Jeremy McNeil deliberately allow himself to get beaten? Because he knew what the the consequences would be? And so he took his licks because, yeah, my sacrifice will be for the greater good. Was Don Sebastian just that powerful? And if so, how? How could he just beat the ever-loving shit out of a bruja who had celerity and potence? Who knows? No one quite knows the full story. My money's on the McNeil sacrificing himself for the cause because that's a very anarch thing to do if you actually fully believe in your ideals. It was a symbolic sacrifice that he was like, look, look, see? See, they're they're oppressing me. They're stomping me down. He's kicking my ass. Help, help, I'm being repressed. Help, help, I'm being repressed. <laughs> right, and and that and but whether Sebastian was just a badass or McNeil sacrificed himself, the outcome was exactly what McNeil probably wanted because his followers rose up against Sebastian, killing him and taking over the city. For the mortals, this moment in their in the kindred history. For the mortals, this was memorialized as the Zoot Suit Riots. Yes. So for those of you who are not all up and up on your Los Angeles history or even your civil rights history, and I feel like in this moment in time in our history and our culture and our and our real life culture in our real life world with everything that's going on, you need to go read up on the Zoot Suit Riots. Go do it. Go do it now. It's on Wikipedia. I, as a scholar, do not normally say Wikipedia is a good source, but if you need a quick and dirty source, there's Wikipedia. Go look up the Zoot Suit Riots. It was a, it was a situation where uh, young, it's, it's during World War II, young naval officers were here, they were out on the town, they got into a conflict with young Latinos, you know, the Pachucos who were out in their zoot suits. That's, that was the badge of being a Pachuco, was your zoot suit. And they started 
picking fights and curb stomping on them. And this led to riots that then led to the unjust persecution of these young Latino men. And so that is the, that's the real life history. In the white wolf world, all of this is also all tied up into the greater anarch revolt that happened in the wake of Jeremy McNeil getting beaten by Don Sebastian and then the anarchs just rising up in revolt against Don Sebastian. Now, you ask yourselves, how in the world could the anarchs get away with just coming up, rising up, and overthrowing a Camarilla prince and everybody being cool with that? Remember what we said during the Convention of Thorns. The agreement is, we will let you back into the Camarilla, no questions asked, and all is forgiven, and in exchange... If you persecute us, then the treaty is broken and all bets are off and we will defend ourselves. So Don Sebastian essentially broke the Convention of Thorns. And the Anarchs rose up in rebellion. And the Camry is like, well. So that happened. <laughs> you know, I That's right. At this moment, it was in that moment that the Camry was like, ooh. Ooh, these anarchs, they're a force to be reckoned with. We, we're going to have to tar- start taking them seriously. Uh, not really so much. I think they just decided that Don Sebastian had it coming. And, and hey, they've banded together and created a free state. Do we throw resources at it and go to war with the anarchs and potentially create yet another anarch revolt? Or do we just let it let them have the West Coast and let it abide? And that's really kind of where the, the Camarilla came down. And for a long time, they're just like, let's just let it abide. Well, in the aftermath, McNeil and Garcia, they helped create a revolutionary council that would spur the movement throughout Southern California. Garcia's Anarch Manifesto would become the influential treatise of the cause, laying out ideals and goals for this revolution. Now, the idea behind that If there is an actual manifesto, that means that before, way back in history, when the Anarchs first started back at the Convention of Thorns and all of that, they didn't really have a unifying factor. But now suddenly, this great success happened. Southern California belongs to the Anarchs. Now they have a manifesto. They're, They're kind of starting to come up in the world. Yeah. And because of the success of Los Angeles, Anarchs would begin sweeping up and down the coast of California and they took over San Diego. Obviously, Los Angeles, all the areas around Los Angeles clear out to the California border and also several other major domains in the Southern California region. For those of you who don't know Southern California, it's pretty massive and there's a lot of cities here, a lot. It's It's a very highly populated region. So they just took all of it. The one area that they didn't take was Northern California. So San Francisco would would stay decidedly Camarilla and was ruled by Vannevar Thomas. And Sacramento would also stay decidedly Camarilla, mostly because it's one of the largest Tremere contingents on the West Coast. They have a very powerful 
Chantry there. It's the home of a Tremere Lord. Ain't no way he was going to let the Anarchs up in his business. So Northern California really didn't have as much of an Anarch presence as Southern California did. But this would become one of the single largest political units of Anarchs in the world. And Many of those Anarchs struggling in other domains under the Camarilla would flock here to California because this is it. This is, this, history is happening right here, right? We want to be a part of that. And and that would lead to something of a vampire boom in, in Los Angeles. Like we were talking about the other booms, like the orange tree booms and the and the film boom and and the the oil rush and the oil rush and the the rise of the military and manufacturing during the cold war like just like all those booms there was a vampire boom and vampires started pouring into southern california because this was this was the dream right here right right but again all good things must come to an end the Revolutionary Council would eventually dissolve to leave the states to rule themselves in mutuality with one another. Now, I'm, I'm assuming this means that the free states were would be like, what, Los Angeles would be considered a free state, and then San Diego would be their own? So they'd have to, they would take care of their own? Well, it was even more broken up than that. Like, you would have, like, for example, one of the mo- more famous anarch barons of Los Angeles, and one of my personal favorites, Louis oh, Fortier. No. Yeah, that's what I. Yep, knew that was coming. Louis Fortier. He he ruled in Beverly Hills, yo, because he was all about his hoes and his money. <laughs> I like money and I like bitches. That's that's Louis Fortier, two at, and so he 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 controlled Beverly Hills. And he didn't control anything else. He just controlled, like, Beverly Hills and Bel Air and, like, Brentwood. That was his domain. Whereas Salvador Garcia, many of his followers controlled East Los Angeles. So they're all, like, <coughs> Islos. And, uh, and they controlled everything up that, that quarter around downtown. You had different groups who were controlling South Central LA and down into, like, Compton, so you had a whole completely different group there. And then Santa Monica is its own different thing. Uh, again, for those of you who go and read LA by Night and who are not Angelinos, feel free to always message me and John about it. Because we're like, no, we have to explain it. Because LA is not just a big city. It's it's sprawling. It's huge. It's massive. I think from my, yes. from my house in the San Gabriel Valley, and I live like... And to the east of Pasadena is where I live. I'm up in the Pasadena area. Yeah, we will help happily help anybody out with their geography of LA. <laughs> yeah, but from my house up there to say LAX, which is the you know major airport, it's easily 35, 40 miles from just from those two points. So for a lot of you, you're like, that's just the, the that's just the size of my city. And I'm like, well, that's a good chunk of LA there, and that's still not all of it. So Los Angeles itself is big enough that you could have multiple barons. You had a baron of this of part of this the San Fernando Valley, and another baron who is who controlled the other part of the San Fernando Valley. You had someone in downtown, and you had someone who controlled like East LA, but then that's separate from the people who were in like. 
Monterey Park and Alhambra and and then completely different people up in Pasadena. And that's separate from like Glendale or Hollywood. So you can see very quickly how you get all these anarchs who are like, this is my territory. I'm staking my claim. And yeah, sure. As long as we're getting along and we all agree that my rights are as cool as your rights, then it works. But what happens when it doesn't? Right, because of all that infighting and the bickering amongst themselves and each other. Because, like I said, if Beverly Hills butts up against downtown, there's going to be some conflict there. And if everything's broken up into tiny little baronies, that's going to, you know, some people are going to try to take advantage of that. And that exactly is what led to a counter-revolution by the Sabbat in the 60s. Now, this was shut down by a collective of anarchs but it would soon return with petty squabbling. So they were able to unite against the Sabbat, being like, hey, you're just as bad as those other assholes we kicked out of here. You guys can hit the road. But as soon as they left, they're like, they're back at it again with their petty squabbles. Yeah, because it's like, hey, you're in my territory. You looked at mine. Stop breathing on my barony. It's just like when you were kids (laughs) in the car. Right. Well, with the West Coast more decidedly free and less controlled by the Camarilla than the rest of the country in the modern nights, well, this also would be a, something that the QE Gen would take advantage of. But that's, of course, a different story. Yeah, a whole different story. A whole different story. So as mentioned before, the Anarchs aren't built on structures or code of conducts, but they are, they are sort of adamantly against that sort of thing. But... Given the manifesto, I think that they have some some guidelines. They're rough guidelines. Yeah, they're rough guidelines. Yeah, so they're very rough guidelines. I feel like I should underline this. Anarchs don't necessarily like law and order, but they do recognize that some structures and ways of understanding themselves have to be in place. And even when they set down these lines, then they argue about it because, well, no, that's not how I feel it is and blah, 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 blah. So among anarchists, you'll find that there tends to be a variety of different feelings on how much order one should bring to all this chaos. So while everyone's opinions are different, they fall most broadly into kind of two very, very, very loose camps. The first is the idea of the true anarch, and they have little or no patience with any sort of attempts to control society. They're like, nope, nope, not going to do that. Not going to do that either. No. And they range from everything from the peace-loving utopians to the loners who want to shun the Camarilla altogether to the truly violent revolutionaries who want to tear apart the structures of society because they feel those are the problems. So those that's more your true anarch. Then other anarchs, they don't necessarily wish to tear apart society and its structures so much as they wish to maybe modify them or correct them in areas they feel are they've gone wrong or astray. And these are more egalitarian thinkers among the Anarchs who want to remove the status of class and rank among vampires, particularly those who come from a Camarilla background where status and rank are a big deal. And they want to create societies where everyone is treated fairly. So ideas for these kind of perfect societies range from like true democracies, like you would find in Athens, 
to uh, meritocracies. So the idea that the more you do for the society, the, the better standing you have. But they all address key flaws in the ancient system of the elders and princes that the Camarilla espouses. Because the Camarilla is just a continuation of the same old, same old, as far as the Anarchs are concerned. They, this group is trying to maybe mold and change it and say, I think there's a better way. But in reality, Anarchs pretty much just organize themselves, usually in whatever way that works best for them. And there are as many different kinds of Anarch groups as there are ideas among Anarchs. So it's sort of like that old adage of, you know, what do you, how do you come to an agreement when you have like three opinions in the room? Like it's, it's, that's really where you are with the Anarchs. But all that said, there's been over time a more organized Anarch movement that has been built up on the West, West Coast, especially in the wake of the Free State and everything that's been built up in, here in Southern California in terms of anarchy. So this, the Anarch movement here in Southern California had to figure out ways to organize itself kind of in a very loose structure. And even though they've kind of created this, like, this, the, I wouldn't even call it a sect, but they've kind of created this concept of like, we can all agree to use these terms to organize ourselves. It's not really fully fleshed out like the Camarilla or the Sabat is. Uh, It's, it's very loose. It doesn't have its own sense of structure and cohesion that ties it all together. It, it's just, you know, it's a kind of a way that they can all recognize amongst each other that this is this is how I know who's in charge to, uh, in which territory and how they set things up, if that makes sense. Yeah, I kind of look at this in terms of this is sort of the evolution of a society. In the beginning, the Camarilla was similar with their princes and lords and back in the Middle Ages ruling their own little fiefdoms, but they had to come together because of, you know, the Inquisition. And so they had to create, but they had to, but because of the elders they were ruling, they came up with different titles and different power structures. The Anarchs are different in that they're mostly young, more idealistic. Um, Not necessarily all of them are fledglings or neonates. There are some elders, I'm sure. But it's the idea that they recognized that to keep their society structured ever so however loosely they had to develop a system themselves and this is kind of where the idea of in the modern nights up until the 21st even into the 21st century they start to have their own organization which is why when most people say anarchs they're talking about the sect they become their own splinter group if you will but even then i would use sect very very loosely well yeah because, again, they're Anarchs, and the idea behind it is no matter which barony you, you travel through, they're going to have different rules than the one you just left. Yeah, so hold anything we tell you here about the structure of the Anarchs very loosely. This is this is just, like, as broad. The, these are as broad strokes as you get. Right. I'm pretty sure the, the only connective tissue is going to be in the titles. Yeah. And then beyond that... It's it's a crapshoot, yeah. depending on which barony you travel to. Yep. 
because there, there, yeah, there is no organizing uh, treatise. No. So out of this, out of the organization, the reorganizing, the desire to form an order, came these loose titles. Like we said, hold these ideas very loosely. They're they're offices that are not unlike those of the Camarilla, but it's a, it's more it's more vague than that. Yeah, I. These, I think, are terms that the Anarchs would recognize among themselves as like, okay, I know who you are and what your standing is in our culture. But outside of that, even Anarchs would be kind of like, okay, whatever. And the Camarilla does not recognize this at all. But the primary person in any Anarch barony is a baron. And... They're kind of like the Camarilla Prince in part. They're basically a, a vampire who claims a territory as their own. Unlike a prince, however, they often do not wield absolute power. And the power that they do hold can be contested by someone else if they choose. So in a Camarilla city, a prince has absolute authority and power in a domain. You do not cross it unless you kill them. Or somehow otherwise overthrow them. Most often it's killing them. But for a baron, you're just the person who squatted on this piece of land and said, it's mine. And if you want it, you got to take it out of my cool dead hands. And there you go. So barons have to strike a careful balance between maintaining a sense of power and authority enough to keep order in their domain without being so autocratic that they come off looking like a Camarilla prince because then that tends to be a strike against you with the Anarchs, understandably so. Most barons believe that they hold their title of leadership not necessarily out of a sense of personal ambition or even that they have a right to rule like a Camarilla prince would, but they see it more as a... a part of their civic duty to their fellow Anarchs and to their political ideas, this greater responsibility to hold a domain and trust for my, my Anarch brothers and sisters. So some cities like Los Angeles can have two or more barons, depending on the size of the city and the number of people who are contesting for power. So for like we gave the example of LA, LA is a very large city. So they have, They've had, they have so many barons. They have a lot of barons during the height of the free state. There are so many barons because the city is so huge. It could actually support that. So a lot of other larger cities like Los Angeles would, if they were anarch cities, would be able to maintain easily more than one barony. And that leads into the next title for the anarchs, which is an emissary. And these are not unlike ambassadors or heralds for the barons. And their job, their main duty is to negotiate with other barons. So like in L.A., you can guarantee there's quite a few emissaries or even parlay with the Camarilla princes. So they could act as representatives for their for a baron of a certain barony. But they're often doing the hard work of managing the power claims within territories, between territories through hopefully mostly diplomatic means, often with prestation and prestige. So while they're not exactly the Camarilla version of prestation, they still can 
you know, barter boons, favors, you know, whatever they have to, to sort of keep the peace and strike deals with neighboring baronies or even Kenria yeah. princes. And then on top of these emissaries, there are something called a sweeper, which is a little weird. It, they're basically a census taker, an over-glorified bean counter. And they are really looking to see who are the vampires living in any baron's area who do and don't belong. Now, why would they need this? <laughs> why do you need a census in the Anarchs? Well, part of that is because unlike the Camarilla, which keeps a very tight control over who is and isn't in a domain at any given time, the Anarchs don't. Like people can just come in and be around and doing their thing. And a baron's going to want to know who's in their territory and who do I need to be aware of. So that's what this this position's all about. It's just, I'm, I'm just checking to see who's in the territory. Who do we need to account for? Because, you know, you also don't necessarily want to have all the vampires clumping in one area. You don't want to have, like, a bad seed hanging around in your particular domain. You don't want to have a challenger. So it's helpful to know who are the people who are hanging out in your territory. This kind of goes along with the idea of the Anarchs at the Convention of Thorns saying that they will uphold the masquerade because there is a carrying capacity for kindred per kind in any city. And so a sweeper, a census taker, is going to have to keep accounting of that just so you can make sure you, the Baron, can make sure that you're not going to draw attention to the kindred of that barony. The next one up is Spies, which is exactly what you would think. It's a nickname that there are a variety of nicknames that many Anarchs call these guys, but they often work for various Barons, and their goal, their purpose, is to infiltrate Kemeria or Sabat on the behalf of the Baron to sort of keep track of what they're doing. Now, these guys, as infiltrators, they often gain rank or status within these organizations to the point where they can feed back the, to the Baron useful intel. Yeah, so you'll find that these Anarch spies often will come into the Camarilla and, like, for example, say you're, you know, Joe Blow Bruja. And they will go into a Camarilla domain and say, I am a Bruja of Bruja descent. Here, and I want to be uh, recognized and, and acknowledged in this Camarilla court thing. <laughs> Camarilla court thing. You know, hey, you cool kids, I am one of you. And the, <laughs> the with the idea being, of course, that they be accepted in the Camarilla and get and if it ideally get into the halls of power just enough to be hearing information they can feed back to their Anarch buddies. And I would say as a role-playing point, if uh, you're in a game where you are being a Anarch spy in a Kimri or a Sabat game, it would probably behoove you to just be something like a whip. Yes. You know, don't draw too much attention to yourself, but make sure you've got uh, a foot in the door or an ear to what's going on in the room. Yep. You want to you wanna be... Close to the room where it happens, maybe not necessarily in the room where it happens. In the room, right. So, and again, all these titles are informal at best, like we, we said. There are many barons 
and nomadic anarch groups who are not nearly this organized. You know, I have in my mind's eye that there's, you know, some baronies who are just like on, only slightly on the side of Mad Max, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so this sort of setup is more common in more highly developed anarch uh, areas. So like the Anarch Free State here and the West Coast would be a primary example of where you would find this model. But that doesn't mean every anarch group is run by these rules. They're anarchs. They don't like rules. So they will do whatever they want. That said, the fact that there are these titles at all is taken by many in the anarch movement as something of making them something of a sect, whether they like it or not. And in fact, among some of the more adamant anarchs, the fact that they even have this much structure that has been laid out, it feels like a sellout to the anarch ideals, in their opinion. So there are many anarch barons who choose to simply have a kind of loose group of advisors and maybe some bully boys, kind of think of like a medieval warlord. And they aren't formal, you know, in the sense of like, the Camarilla having titles and you're, you have the, you have enough status to go and do this thing. That's not how it works. It's really the, that it's really the idea that there's nothing formal here. And, you know, they just really want to control their territories on their own terms, however they want to do it. So. Well, boys and girls, that's going to bring us to the end of the first half of the Anarchs. I hope that you've kind of, glean from this the idea that it's sort of vague a lot of the anarchy is just built on the idea of personal freedoms and it's the idea that you know you are the the master of your own fate no elders lording their control over you you don't have the religious zeal you know guiding you and basically you're kind of your own vampire but with that comes the idea of you have to admit that there are some natural order to things that you have to keep stay within the guidelines of you know that's why i think as far as the groups if like like we said before if you can even call it a sect the anarchs are probably one of the ones that lend itself to the most freedom but it's also because of the vagueness i will say as a role player anarchs might be one of the more difficult groups to play because within the Sabbat or the Camarilla, there are those strict rules and guidelines you have to follow that help keep you contained within the, the story in some ways. You know, by all means, if, if your storyteller is up for it and you want to flex those muscles, try an Anarch. Yeah, because, you know, hey, if you want to, if you really are interested in playing someone who really does not want to play by the Camarilla's rules... And you don't necessarily want to go as dark as the Sabbat. And I will tell you, Sabbat's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. Anarch's a pretty good option. I just want to be a person who just hangs out and tell, and complains about like the status quo. Think that, that this is maybe the area for you. So I will say I don't find the Anarchs quite as challenging. I will as I... And I think in part because it, the Anarch, there's so many different kinds of Anarchs. I find it much more intriguing to have Anarchs who are different styles of Anarch. So like your Salvador Garcia is going to be an Anarch. 
than, say, like Muhammad al-Muthim, who <laughs> he has a little bit of a history, a complicated history, but very different anarchs. Because one of them is also a member of the Sabbat. But I digress. It's just a very different outlook on what it means to be being an anarch about. And that they, they both would be very different than, say, a, an anarch from, from Russia. So I, I think what I find most interesting about the anarchs is really their philosophies and trying to dig into that a little more and what that why is this so important to them? What are the commonalities and what are the very real differences and arguments they have? Very good points. And next episode, we are going to dig into exactly just who are anarchs and a little, you know, and follow it up with our concept ideas and some more role playing tips. And we really hope that you guys will listen in on that one as this will be that'll be our part two. Mm-hmm. And thanks for joining us on this one. Yes, and wherever you are, whatever's going on with you, stay safe. And especially if you too are speaking out against the status quo, just be safe. That's right. That's all we ask. I second that. And with that, my name was John. I'm Jen. And we'll talk to you next time. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs>